Oh, Father, that song has always been true. I remember Mother singing it at the end of one of Dad's sermons as an appeal. It was true then. It is true today. It will be as true in eternity. And so, Father, we are all the guilty pair. We have all sinned and fallen far short of your glory. But the promise of your love surely is for us that no matter how far, your heart longs to bring us back. We believe what we have just sung. Let it go deep and may it ever be good news. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Today I'd like to share with you some fascinating social theory that I believe proves, and I'm happy to put proves in quotation marks so that'll make you feel better. I believe this piece of social theory proves what you and I have been studying together in that great book of Romans. I became acquainted with this because of a book loaned to me by my colleague and friend Skip McCarty. I'll put the book on the screen for you. Title of the book, The Paradox of Choice, Why Less is More. It's written by a social theorist named Barry Schwartz who teaches at Swarthmore College. How is it? Here's what the book's wrestling with. How is it that we as human beings make our choices? As an example, since we're all suffering right now through continuing escalating gasoline prices, consider this illustration from Barry Schwartz. He says, imagine, and we don't have to go too far to imagine it, a gas station on a, two gas stations on a busy intersection. We used to have, we used to have it here in Berrien Springs, but because we don't anymore, we had to go to Buchanan to take this picture. But in Buchanan, there it is, we have two gas stations on opposite corners. All right? Now, one gas station offers a discount price for cash transactions and has a big sign out front that reads, Discount for paying cash. Cash, $1.95 a gallon. Credit, $2.05 a gallon. The other gas station across the way offers... A small surcharge. Now, it's not really offers, it imposes. In fact, it's a very tiny sign right above the pump when you drive up. It says on it, cash, $1.95, credit, $2.05 per gallon. Now, now ladies and gentlemen, can you, can you see, this is not a trick question, that the, the gas prices are the same? Do you see that? The gas prices are the same. Isn't that right in both, both gas stations? The only difference is the reference price. You see, in one station, the reference price is $2.05, so that by paying, paying cash, it's framed as a discount. You see that? You pay cash, it's 10 cents cheaper. In the other station, the reference price is $1.95, so that if you're going to pay credit, you're surcharged 10 cents. Now listen, this is the difference between discount and surcharge. What's not to like about a discount, huh? Ah, that's what Barry Schwartz is concluding. How an offer is framed can make all the difference in the world. In fact, I wish you'd write that down. That point is so critical. Take out your study guide, please. That's in your worship bulletin today. If you got in here without a study guide, just hold your hand up. Our, our ushers will now make certain that you get a study guide. Students are away on break. I'm so glad you're here. 
I promised the students, look, we're not going to continue on in the book of Romans while you're gone. We'll put it on hold. So I'm going to go to another book. We're going to find out if the same author, Paul, is consistent elsewhere in the New Testament. So take out your study guide. Those of you watching on television right now, go to, please, our website. Let me put it on the screen for you right now. www.pmchurch.tv. That's our website. Click onto our series. This happens to be a series entitled Wine and Milk. Can't believe this, but this is already part 15. And then click onto our, our, our message for today, I Done It For Love. When you click onto that, when it, where it says study guide, you get the same study guide. All right, so let's take our, our uh, study guides now. We're going to uh, social theory. You say, but, but, but pastor, we don't need that. No, 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 hold on. Could it be that social theory corroborates what we have already been discovering in our study of the book of Romans. So let's, let's go. First sentence, fill it out, please. Barry Schwartz, in the paradox of choice, why less is more, that's his book, notes that how an offer is framed. Go ahead and put it in quotation marks because that's technical language. How an offer is framed can make all the difference in the world. This concept of framing, by the way, comes from the research of two other social scientists, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky, who have come up with what they call the prospect theory. Don't worry about it. That's just to, to show you that it really is based on some science. Now, let's raise the stakes. Let's, let's look at another illustration which they give. Here's another illustration. Imagine you are a physician working in an Asian village. Let's put an Asian village, please, on the screen. All right, you're working in that village. The village has 600, no, 600 villagers have come down with a life-threatening disease. Okay? Two possible treatments exist. If you choose treatment A, we'll put it on the screen for you, you will save exactly 200 people. Okay? If you choose treatment B, there is a one-third chance that you will save all 600 people and a two-thirds chance that you will save no one. So, which treatment would you choose? Treatment A or treatment B? Huh? When posed with that question, the vast majority of respondents say, and I, I did too when I was reading the book, Put it back up, please. I, 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 I would go with treatment A. Why? Because, I'm quoting now, they prefer saving a definite number of lives for sure to the risk that they will save no one. Let's do, let's do another example, okay? You're a physician working in an Asian village where 600 villagers come down with a life-threatening disease. Two possible treatments exist. If you choose treatment C, let's put it up, please. Treatment C, exactly 400 people will die. If you choose treatment D, there is a one-third chance that no one will die and a two-thirds chance that everyone will die. Now, in this scenario, which treatment would you choose? Well, yeah, I go with D, please. I go with D. Why? And the vast majority, by the way, do choose D. Why? And I'm quoting again. They would rather risk losing everyone than settle for the death of 400 people. And yet, ladies and gentlemen, in both of those stories, the treatments are identical. Did you catch that? I didn't. The treatments are identical. The only thing that has been changed is the way the treatments were framed to you. Let's put it back up on the screen, please. Treatment A is to save 200. Treatment C is to lose 400. Aren't they the same? In a village of 600, isn't that the same? Yeah. And let's look at uh, treatment B and treatment D. One-third chance to save all. Two-thirds chance to save no one. Versus D. One-third chance none die. Two-thirds chance all, all die. 
And yet, did you notice this? In the first story, we said, no way, I'm not going to use B. I'm not choosing B. But when we got to the second story, we said, oh, I have to have D. But D was the very choice we rejected in the first story. See what's happening? The only difference, folks, come on, come on, come on, come on. The only difference is the way it was framed to you. It's the same treatment. But because we have a, we have a bias for saving life, just give me, let me guarantee some I can save. We opted for life instead of death. And that's why we made the choices we made. Fill it out, please, in your study guide. When it comes to human choice, this is critical. Framing makes all the difference in the world. Quoting uh, Barry Schwartz, keep your pen moving. It is the framing of the choice that affects our perception. Our perception of it. And in turn affects what we choose. Whoa. And what does that have to do with God? Open your Bible, please. Not to the book of Romans. Open it, please, to the book of this, the uh, second book of Second Corinthians. Second Corinthians. I want you to take a look at a moving passage. Is Paul consistent outside of Romans with what we've been learning inside of Romans? Well, let's find out. Second Corinthians chapter five. By the way, I'm reading from a brand new Bible. This is a brand new translation. Just bought it Sunday. It's the newest English translation on the market, and it's called the Holman Christian Standard Bible. Everybody's heard of Holman. It's a well-known Bible publishing company, but now they have their own translation. I'm rather enamored. I always like new translations. And so today, uh, I want to share with you, I like the way this passage is treated in the Holman Christian Standard Bible. So let, that's what will be on the screen, those of you watching on television. Look, if you came without a Bible and you'd like to follow along, we have a pew Bible. Take the pew Bible out in front of you. Find page 779 and you'll be at the same place we are. Read along uh, in whatever translation you have. This would be 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Drop down to verse 14. All right? 2 Corinthians 5 verse 14. For Christ's love compels us since we have reached this conclusion. If one died for all, then all died. Verse 15, and he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. I want to ask last week's question again. How much of all is all? Would you write it down in your study guide? If one died for all, then all died. Well, that means that Christ died for the entire human race and the entire human race was in Christ in that death. If one died for all, then all died. Ladies and gentlemen, how much of all is all? Paul hasn't changed his gospel tune by a single note, has he? Romans 3, all have sinned and all have been justified freely by grace. That would be verses 23 and 24. Romans 4, God justifies or acquits the ungodly. That would be verse 5. Romans 5, by one man, Adam, our study last week, we were all lost. And through the other man, Jesus, we were all found pardoned and justified. Verse 18. In fact, let me put it on the screen for you. Romans 5, verse 18. And you fill it in, please, in your study guide. I like the way this renders it. So then, as through one trespass, there is condemnation for Everyone, write it in please, for everyone. So also, through one righteous act, there is life-giving justification for everyone. Whoa. How much of everyone is everyone? How much of all is all? Well, it's the whole, it's, it's, it's the 
whole Christian, the whole human race. Write that in, please. The whole human race was in Christ when he died for the whole human race. It's everybody. Please. If one died for all, then all died. You're saying, Pastor, what does this have to do with social theory and framing? <laughs> you watch. Watch this. Okay. Let's, let's read just a little more in this chapter. Drop down to verse 18. I'll keep reading in the Holman Christian Standard Bible. Verse 18. Now everything is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them. Wow. And he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Now go to verse 20. Therefore, I love this, we are ambassadors for Christ, certain that God is appealing through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Finally, 21. He made the one who did not know sin, that would be Jesus, to be sin for us. So that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. I ask it again, how much of all is all? It's the whole world that God was in Christ reconciling back to Himself at the cross. And by the way, did you notice verse 19? Not counting the world's trespasses against them. It wasn't counted against them. The world hasn't even asked for forgiveness yet. And He says, nope, not going to count it against you. Paul declares the gospel truth that God in Christ has already forgiven the whole world of their sins, not counting their trespasses against them. Listen to this, ladies and gentlemen. Every baby born into this world is not only born lost, lost, but is also born found and reconciled and pardoned and acquitted and loved and saved. Save for the babies who grow up and choose to reject the gift that God has already given to them. Provided in Christ for them. Oh, but you're right, you're right, you're right. Though God has reconciled him, Himself to every sinner that has ever lived, every sinner that has ever lived has to make the decision whether to cash God's salvation check and receive God's saving reconciliation. You're right. The choice has to be made. Which is why, by the way, there is verse 20. Look at verse 20. Therefore, we, Christians, you and me, we are ambassadors for Christ. Certain that God is appealing through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled with God, I beg of you. Cash your check. Take it in. Come back home. Accept God's offer. Be reconciled to Him. What in the world does this have to do with social theory? Or rather, what does the social theory we have already examined have to do with the everlasting gospel? Very much, very much, I personally conclude. Let me share one more illustration from Barry Schwartz's book regarding how we make choices. Give me, please, a beautiful new car. Put the new car on the screen. Oh, hallelujah. What is that, Alexis? Alexis SUV. Mercy. They have found out that how people make car buying decisions very differently under two different conditions. Let me share those conditions with you. In the first condition, the customers are offered a car. Leave it on the screen. There it is. They're offered a car with 
everything on it. DVD player, quadraphonic stereo, moonroof, sunroof, electric seats, the whole nine yards. Everything's on it. And what you have to do, sir, is take the options off that you do not want. Okay, that's condition one. The other condition is they're given a car with no options on it. And you may add as many options as you wish to pay for. You add them. And the difference, the results from testing it both ways... Let me put it on the screen. You have it in your study guide. People in the first condition who have the car with all the options on it ended up, are you surprised, ended up with many more options than people in the second. Listen, this is because when options are already attached to the car being considered, they become part of the endowment and passing them up entails a feeling of loss. That car salesman is not a dummy. When he says to you, hey, listen, hey, hey, take the car home and have your husband drive it with you. Just do it. No, no, go ahead. I trust you. You'll bring it back. Take it home. Let him drive around. And just come on back. The longer it's there. See, the, the, some, I'm beginning to feel like this is, this is me. Uh, where, did I, where did I end off here? When the options are... Oh, okay. So, when the options are not already attached, they are not part of the endowment. And choosing them is perceived... As game. Now he's saying, Pastor, what's the, come on, Dwight, what, what, what is the big deal? Ah, two now enter, please, two theoretical realities that Kahneman and Tversky refer to as, and these are technical terms, would you write them down, please? Number one, loss aversion. Loss aversion. We all, keep writing, we all hate to lose. Keep writing. Some studies, I'm quoting now, have estimated that losses have more than twice the psychological impact as equivalent gains. It hurts to lose. So nobody likes to lose. Which, by the way, ladies, when you buy... Well, not just ladies. Fellas, when you buy an expensive pair of shoes... All right, guys, when's the last time you ever bought an expensive pair of shoes? So it must be ladies. All right, ladies, when you buy an expensive pair of shoes, but they hurt, they pinch, I'm not comfortable in these... If you've paid big bucks, you will force yourself to keep wearing those shoes because you do not want to lose what you have purchased. And in fact, they have found that the more money you paid for those shoes, the longer they will sit in the back of the closet until mentally you have fully depreciated them and then you will throw them out. Isn't that true? I mean, it's true with us guys, that suit. Why is that suit still in my closet? Well, you know, it was a good suit. I mean, please. We have, we have loss aversion. All right, there are two technical terms. Number one is loss aversion. Here's the other one. The endowment effect. The, the endowment effect. Once, keep writing, once something is given to you, it's yours. It's yours. In a room full of people at a WAUS thank you concert, Sharon Dugan, our station director, she moves to the group and she says, Hey, folks, we are so grateful for what you're doing. I have a little appreciation gift. And she has mugs with WAUS on it or pens. Let's just say that the mugs and the pens are distributed half and half throughout the room. Studies have found that once, listen, once you possess your gift, a pen or a hot drink mug... And by the way, if you're going to give me a gift, please make it a pen. I'm so sick and tired of those mugs. We've got a whole shelf full of mugs. 
I said that in first church and one of our salesmen came and slipped under my door a beautiful new pen. And so if any of you have pens, my door is right around the corner right there. And uh, I have just a fetish for pens. Okay, studies have found that once you possess your gift, listen, now here it comes. Once you have that free gift, if the invitation is made to trade your gift, guess what? Very few recipients are willing to relinquish that gift. What's taking place? It's the endowment effect. I'm quoting now. Once it becomes your endowment, even after a very few minutes, giving it up will entail a loss. And remember, don't forget, we have a loss aversion. Remember that? Which means that according to the theory, because experiencing a loss... A loss has twice the impact as an equivalent gain. I will choose to hang on to what I've been endowed rather than giving it up for a perceived gain. I do not want to lose what I already have. Which is why when you buy a car, it's much harder to take away the options. They know that. So they give you the car fully loaded. It's much harder to take it away. Take those options away than it is to add. It's loss aversion. The endowment effect. I already feel like I own the car. It's mine. Keep writing. One last sentence from the book. Because losses. Why has this happened? Because losses hurt more than gains satisfy. Now, I need you to really be thinking clearly. Could that be why God has framed the everlasting gospel the way Paul has taught us? Because we are wired, as social theory observes, with both loss aversion and the endowment effect. And so God comes to us. God comes to the entire human race with His offer of salvation, with all, with all the options already on it. Instead of saying, he, I mean, He could say this. He, instead of saying, oh, okay, all right, all right, oh, okay, okay, glad you're interested. You may come to me, but... You must move through my proscribed procedures and requirements. You perform them, I'll check them off, and we'll see when you're through. If you're sincere, okay. If you're truly repentant, all right. If you genuinely confess, okay. If you truly believe, then I will decide upon the merits of your petition, and I will grant it if you qualify. You say, oh, but come on, come on, that, that's just a caricature. And of course it is. But the reality is that in too many people's thinking, even right here, right now, in too many people's thinking, salvation is requisite upon a growing list of human efforts and responses. Now think with me, by very definition, to condition God's salvation upon proscribed human acts is to render it no longer by grace through faith alone. You've changed it. You've changed it. It's now by works and human merit. Anathema. Nope. Paul writes, no, God cries, I have already provided your salvation 2,000 years before you were born, 2,000 years before you ever believed. I already provided it. Forgiveness, God says, you run through my checklist. Forgiveness, check. 
at the cross. Already for you. Pardon? Check. At the cross. Already for you. Acquittal? Check. At the cross. Already for you. Justification? Check. At the cross. Already for you. Savior? Check. At the cross. Already for you. Salvation? Check. At the cross. Already for you. Eternal life? Check. At the cross. Already for you. Two thousand years ago, God provided the gift with all the options already on it. A gift that cannot be diminished or enhanced by our human response or the lack thereof. The gift is already complete and it is completely made. It's done. It is finished. Finished. Oh, and by the way, a gift that perfectly matches our endowment effect with which we are wired, compelling us once we fathom its unspeakable magnitude to cling to it as if it were our very own. I'm not going to give this up now. It's mine. A gift, by the way, perfectly tugging at our loss aversion, compelling us by the magnitude of the unspeakable options that are included in its gracious giving, compelling us to avoid the terrible pain of losing what we already have. Do you understand the gift is already yours? Don't give the gift up. It appeals to our loss aversion and says, hang on to it. Hang on to it. You know what, ladies and gentlemen? God, what is this? God. Knowing how we are wired has, has framed his offer in the most enticing way possible to secure as many human yeses as there can be. Some people think that God has framed salvation to secure as many no's as he can. Not knowing that Calvary is where God justified Pardoned, acquitted, and saved with His gift, the entire human race. How did, how, did, how did this line go we just read? In Christ, God was reconciling the whole world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. In the words of Daniel Burnham, the great Chicago architect, and my friend Bruce Rand gave this to me years ago, and I've carried it in my daytimer and Palm Pilot ever since. I love this. Daniel Berman wrote, Make no small plans, for they do not contain the magic to stir men's souls. And so God, the architect of our salvation, unveils a plan of unspeakable magnitude to stir the hearts of men and women on this planet to entice them, to beg them to say yes to what has already been provided. In Christ, God was reconciling the whole world at the cross to Himself. He will save the entire human race if they will let Him. One last line to fill in. Write it in, please. Could it be that the everlasting gospel of universal justification is God's strategic and intentional appeal to our human endowment effect and loss aversion for the sake of maximizing the number of His earth children who will say yes to Him for eternity?
To quote Barry Schwartz one last time, it is the framing of the choice that affects our perception of it and in turn affects what we choose. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14, For Christ's love compels us. Since we have reached this conclusion, if one died for all, then all died. Brennan Manning, in that wonderful, engaging book of his, Lion and Lamb, tells a story about a little boy the day before Christmas. Mama's busy wrapping packages, and so she calls out to her boy, Junior, I need you please to, to polish my shoes. And so the boy cheerfully takes his mother's shoes, he polishes them, and finally, at last, he brings them back to Mama with a proud smile that only a seven-year-old countenance can muster, and he hands them back to her, and Mama is so pleased. She just, whoa! She reaches into her purse, and she gives him a quarter. The next morning... She puts on those shoes and she feels something down in her toes. And so she turns the shoe upside down and a little piece of paper drops out with something inside of it. She unfolds the piece of paper and inside the paper is that quarter. And on the piece of paper are scrawled in childlike strokes the words, I done it for love. Ladies and gentlemen, I know God's grammar is better. But I am positive his message is the same. I've done it. I've done it for love. In the shadows of Calvary, when God gave himself to the entire human race, you can still hear him cry, I've done it for love. For the love of Christ compels us. I've done it for love. Next Sabbath, at the foot of the cross, we are going to be given a golden opportunity to look up into that same face and say it right back to Him. Oh, Jesus. Oh, God. I've done it. I do this. I do this for love for You. I do this for You.